everyone and welcome back to another episode of the RegTech Pulse. Um, a few weeks ago on this show, we discussed the 11th sanctions package, which the EU released late in June. Um, Julia Sochi from Studio Legale Padovan gave some very interesting insights. And today we are joined by our Market Planning Director for Trade Compliance, Annette Klossik. We're going to focus this episode specifically around trade compliance because there's a very big trade compliance element to this piece. So, Annette, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> so let's just dive straight in. So obviously, as I said, we, we discussed this a little bit with, with Julia and we talked about the sort of the anti-circumvention measures which were included in this latest package. But there is a really big focus on trade. So I wondered if you could start by giving us an overview of these new regulations regarding trade and, and ultimately what the goal is of those. Yes, absolutely. So I'm sure they recapped what the regulation is about and what it will cover and in what scope and shape or form it will be enforced. So the regulation came into force on the 24th of July and uh, the ultimate goal is to create effective sanction tools that enable the prevention of circumvention of sanctions by actors in the trade ecosystem that have bad intentions. Um, it would give the regulator an effective tool to enforce very quickly um, strict measures such as, for example, bans or like, for example, prohibitions to sell and distribute goods to grey countries or those that have previously appeared to be in lucrative stepping stone for sanction evasions, as in like a country that would use as a transit country for goods to be shipped to a sanctioned country with the ultimate goal at the end. Um, the regulatory update created a greater focus on the trade ecosystem because they recognized the risk of ports and the role they play in the entire ecosystem. And it pushed further emphasis on corporations and their role in the fight against financial crime um, and uh, the role of trade and economic sanctions and how closely everything is tied. So touching on that on that point about about ports in particular, ports and shippers, what are some of those practical implications for you know shippers, port owners, banks who are involved in, in international trade? So maybe let's just uh, focus on ports for a second because it's one of the biggest developments in the regulatory history in relation to trade, probably. Um, and I'd like to touch on two points. The first development I want to point out is the prevention of the abuse of transit rules, as in like so-called false transit, which is one of the most widely used circumvention schemes uh, used by bad actors in that field. Uh, so the proposed expansion of the EU road transit ban um, is focusing on adding certain technology and tech products and aircraft parts um, that would go to these third countries via Russia. Um, and I do think it's the right step to recognize that this is actually a crucial um, development here because it's recognized as a risk and, and a big red flag um, from, from previous uh, yeah, fr from previous examples, from previous breaches. Um, and to avoid sanction circumvention, the ban on transit should include a wide range of sanctioned products. So it wouldn't stop here at aircraft parts and technology, but it will be widened out um, once we have more clarities what products are affected. And those products will be constantly reviewed. The second recent development from the EU concerning international trade 
would be focusing more precisely on vessels that engage in illicit shipments of Russian oil. As part of this 11th package, the EU has introduced a mechanism um, that would require ports to block access to um, ports that are located in the EU um, for vessels uh, that are found to engage in deceptive practices, such as, for example, ship-to-ship transfer or switching off their transponder um, for purposes that are not allowed. There are certain circumstances where ships would be allowed uh, for safety reasons to switch off their transponder, especially in waters where there is a higher risk of uh, piracy. Um, But if there is no solid reason to engage in such uh, practice, um, ports would have the requirement to reject this ship from Anchorage and would also go uh, have to go so far as to report this vessel to the authorities. So these new measures are illustrative um, on an increased regulatory scrutiny on international trade and a variety of export controls and tra- trade sanctions are now in place against Russia with a focus on particularly energy products and defense capabilities. So regulators seek to crack down on malign actors using such deceptive practices um, that try to breach these sanctions. Um, Also, what I wanted to point out is that ship-to-ship transfers and AIS manipulations have long been called out as a red flag um, in the past um, and have been adopted by several regulators around the world. Um, But no regulator has actually provided guidance or implemented in their regulation on who would be responsible to do what exactly. And the EU regulator did exactly this. They called out ports as being the gatekeeper of the land and playing a crucial role in that supply chain and in the trade ecosystem. Um, And that ports would have substantial power to prohibit the access of vessels that Uh, play the bad game and uh, would therefore cut off that access to the port and cut off that journey of those goods. And we're we're talking about ports in the EU here. So, I mean, how many ports are we talking about here? How many ports is this going to impact? That is correct. Yes. So, I mean, because it's obviously the EU regulation, it will focus on any port that is located in the European Union first. Um, But that's not to say that um, other regulators, as it often happens, will follow suit. Um, So we're talking here right now about um, the Mediterranean Sea, for example, marks the southern end, while the Baltic and North Sea and Norwegian Sea mark the north end of the sea. These water bodies provide a 360 degree opportunity for ship trading, um, of which Europe consists of over 1,200 major and minor ports across such a diverse and rich waterways. Three of these, uh, Antwerp, Rotterdam and Hamburg, collectively handle the world's 12% of cargo goods. Rotterdam, for example, has bulk liquid cargo handling of 192 million metric tons. A total throughput of almost 437 million Uh, metric tons of cargo also contains about 192 million liquid cargo. But 
Also smaller, less known ports like Bremerhaven, which is based in Germany, or Algeciras in Spain and Piraeus in Greece play a significant role in the shipping ecosystem. Um, alone in Bremerhaven, for example, out of the 5,978 total vessel calls that have been reported in 2020, as much as 60% belong to a container vessels. Um, and, and this puts things into perspective. You need to know which ports um, have the highest anchorage of vessels that ship uh, uh, that, that ship oil or uh, other uh, commodities um, that are subject to these restrictions. Um, and then later, once um, the regulation will focus more into a wider range of products and goods that will be banned or prohibited from this export um, and especially transit of the country, then that might also play a huge part in uh, how uh, ports and corporates design their compliance procedures around that. I mean, yeah, some of those numbers are, are huge. So this, this is going to be a massive, massive change for them. And, and I guess from from a from an operational perspective, from a compliance perspective, what action do these ports or port owners need to be need to be taking now? And is it from now? Is it do they do they have time to prepare for this? Or when does this when does this come into force? So they do need to get ready to be able to track vessels that ship oil first and foremost, because that's the immediate regulatory implication that came into force already on the 24th of July. Um, then there is also an element to um, obviously knowing your vessel as and identifying the vessel, whether it's a sanctioned vessel and whether these vessels um, may enter the port to begin with. Um, but then at the same time, it goes a step beyond that and to identify and to practice further due diligence of the operators of the ship as well as of the owners of the ship, um, which is the second step. Another step, um, which is very crucial, is um, even though most of the ports will engage in GPS tracking uh, simply due to, be, due to the reason to be able to operationally identify vessel routes and how vessels um, voyage through the sea and for safety reasons, obviously, um, they need to have that additional layer of sanction information and intelligence to be able to overlay this data on top of the general um, operational data that they are receiving and to be able to um, draw conclusions um, at a holistic level. At the same time, when you think about the type of vessels or the type of maritime shippers in the world and what volumes of cargo or, or, or volumes of um, liquid they transport and ship, um, we're talking here about massive volumes. So while the first step might be referring to the vessel tracking and suspicious activity, which I personally think is a much um, easier undertaking because for that you need to have the data of the voyage of the vessel and whether it historically and at any point while it's approaching your port um, may behave suspiciously. I call it the easier part. The harder part will become when ports are literally required to block a vessel because 
this ship not only engaged in suspicious activity, but also may carry goods that might pose even a higher risk um, for transiting through certain countries. And identifying goods is probably the biggest headache of the entire industry, whether it be banks, whether it be corporates that need to identify, whether it be transportation companies and so on, um, which doesn't only focus any longer on controlled goods, but we're talking here about sanctioned goods, which goes in so many different directions of different products and um, items and commodities that it will cause a real big headache for companies operationally, given on how many million of tons and how many millions of transactions they deal on an uh, on, on, a, on a daily basis. The biggest um, shippers in the world um, deal with as much as 50 million transactions per day that have several data points um, that require several processes, that require several workflows and several different decision-making routes. So, yes, <laughs> we're literally looking here at the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> and probably a, a bit of a headache initially getting getting people's heads around these new new requirements and and I guess the the new measures that we're talking about here it does seem to reflect this is what we've been talking about for a while there is this increasing focus on increasing importance of you know this um, compliance within the shipping and the maritime sector you know we're hearing a lot more about not only about sort of sanctions but about things like trade-based money laundering right Correct. I think this is um, this is literally the ripple effect that um, tickles down trickles down from one sector to another. Um, regulators as well as the industry slowly recognize that they cannot um, look at their own industry in a silo, but then start looking left, right, and center on what's happening around them, and then adopt accordingly. I think because of the complexity of the trade ecosystem and the supply chain in general, and because there are so many actors involved that have you know, variety of levels of impact on each other, um, I think regulators are slowly learning from previous audits and previous breaches, previous enforcements and penalties, um, and they tend to identify new risk flags and recognize that breaches are often enabled by a number of different compliance failures or lack of measures. And financial crime compliance requirements realize that classic payments are not the source but a symptom. And the actual root cause, cause runs way deeper from uh, the actual financial instruments and the operationalization um, of such that thus far they were not aware of. And then trade-based money laundering, for example, recognizes that trade is not a point-in-time transaction, but stretches operationally often across many weeks or even months, meaning they have recognized and also implemented into their requirements that um, things like behavioral monitoring is required or pattern recognition to recognize whether certain transactions even fit the business model of the business itself. Um, and, and, and also recognize that in that time of process and uh, while the, the entire trade transaction is being processed, which may, may stretch over several weeks, that new data is being added or changes are being made 
And at the same time, regulatory requirements may change also, as in like how many entities have been added recently due to, to the political um, unrest um, in the European Union. Trade-based money laundering also recognizes that not only the financial transaction should be in the focus, but also all mechanisms that try to manipulate the situation for a higher gain. Like, for example, while money laundering, as in from, from a compliance perspective, would look at the movement of cash and the potential disguise um, of its sources, whereas trade-based money laundering includes the facilitation of these practices by um, falsifying information about the underlying goods, meaning like false declaration or uh, declaration of the quantity or lying about the value of the goods, um, which then leads to misdeclaration and so on. Because the, the, the data is so inconsistent in that industry and there is literally no standardization that criminals or those with illicit intent will find those loopholes if the correct procedures um, or measures are not implemented by the companies. So basically, while you've got, okay, regulators, yes, they're cracking down on, you know, oil and gas manufacturers, they're cracking down on banks, the energy sector, financial institutions, they're all more affected by these strict regulations. But then there's suddenly this, well, not suddenly, but there is a clear understanding that the behaviour of actors within the maritime industry is going to impact all of those other sectors, right? So this is where this regulation is starting to become more and more strict. Yeah, uh, definitely. You can you can see that even though this regulation doesn't particularly speak about or doesn't give the bank the power to reject the vessel, right? As in, it, it will not require the bank um, to reject the vessel from a transaction because the, the bank can reject the transaction itself to their customer, but they cannot say, um, we reject the vessel and pro prohibit this vessel to enter the European Union. That's not something that they can do. But at the same time, this, th this prohibition or this rejection by the port to a vessel will have huge implications to every single trade finance transaction, to every single policy maker, as in like uh, 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 insurance policies as well. Um, that may be affected by this, um, and and also the operational um, process of every single corporate that either engages in the same trade or um, that is involved um, in the same transaction that involves these goods, which are being transported on the rejected vessel. So even though whilst the regulation doesn't target corporates and banks for this directly, it may, though, as it keeps the space in the annex for additional provisions, and then that is later to be found out, they will be operationally affected, meaning they may not, um, again, they may not need to block a vessel, but they will need to know whether they should engage in that trade finance transaction. They should know whether um, the co uh, their customer should be engaging with a different shipper or should um, maybe um, instruct their customer to engage a different shipping company or a different um, transportation company that fulfills the entire transaction for them. Um, so the same goes for corporates itself. While they are not obliged to track vessels for, for the regulatory regulatory reason, 
they still may want to know if a vessel could get potentially blocked from entering the port. Um, and then they may need to take precautions for the goods that are being shipped. This may impact their investment strategies. This may impact their cost calculations and their financials, um, after all. And they would also need to check if insurance policies for these goods and for the loss of business um, would still cover um, or if it would cover delays of the business if the goods appear to be on a vessel of concern um, that um, happens or appears to transport goods that are subject to these prohibitions and these restrictions. And so I guess maybe this might be a... <laughs> A, a wide ranging question, I guess, is there any uh, advice, practical guidance that you could give, whether that's to banks, shippers, ports, maybe, maybe ports in particular going forward, having to navigate, particularly for them, that's, this is all a, a very new world. What kind of advice would you give to them? The advice, first and foremost, is to um, look at their procedures and whether they um, have sufficient considerations for any new agile regulation that impact uh, trade operations. And this may take any different shape or form um, from obviously, do I have the right people? Do they know about um, the red flags? Do they know about the risks involved? Do I even know where my risk is um, in my business or what areas of business are affected by increased risk? Um, how do we engage in the trade? But then first and foremost, obviously, um, the more the industry digitalizes, the more it opens itself up to bad actors um, that can hide behind the screen. Um, and the more, or I should rather say, the less face-to-face -face transactions happen, the more risk uh, occurs um, in, in, in doing business, especially on the international scale. Um, so knowing where your risk is and having a holistic view of all the different elements of trade transactions um, and trade operations is crucial to connect the dots between all the different elements of that trade. Meaning you not only look at the entities that you deal with directly, but you also um, look at entities that might be directly or indirectly linked to the entities you're directly dealing with. Um, the second discipline is to look at vessels and how can I make sure as a company to at least be aware if it if the regulation doesn't impact me directly um, because I'm not required to reject, how can I at least make sure that my operations still run smoothly and how can I make sure that I can still um, account for investments and have my financials in order um, should something happen that would impact the transportation of my goods that I'm trading. Um, so I would ask myself as a whether I'm a corporate, a bank or um, or else, um, I think especially as a as a port now because they are obviously mostly affected, um, am I prepared for to address these requirements that are being proposed by the regulator? 
and in what shape or form? And would the volumes that I'm processing, as in the volumes of transactions that I'm processing here, interfere with that process at all? Would that impact the speed of how I can conduct business? Would that impact my SLAs as a company towards my customers? Because I now suddenly have to conduct more compliance checks. And most and mostly important, which parts of my procedures can I actually automate in order to make space for analytical uh, deep dives that may be required in investigative manners? That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Aneta. Aneta Klossick, Market Planning Director for Global Trade Compliance. Thank you so much for joining us on the RegTech Pulse today. Thank you very much. And we've got plenty of resources relating to trade compliance. We'll make sure we include a few in the show notes. So that's it for today's episode. Um, We hope you join in again soon. 